0: I will confess that I don't know anything about fly fishing. But I once had a friend that did. And he took such insane pride in being able to snip things in very particular ways and creating these kind of bands of color out of fabric. The flies were so complex. And there was the woolly bugger, and the pheasant-tailed something or other, and the prince-eared fly mid I don't know what they were called. But they were incredibly complex. It was this arcane art. And even though there were these minute craft differences in a fly that was meant to catch a trout versus a fly that was meant to catch a bass or a sunfish or whatever it was, they all had this one essential quality, this one thing in common, the hook. If you forgot that part, your fishing was not going to go terribly well. We sometimes think about the Torah as a collection of laws, but Torah in Hebrew actually doesn't mean the law. Torah means the revelation of God, the teaching of God. If you think about what's in the Torah, it's Genesis, it's Exodus, it's all these stories. It's the full download of God's knowledge to God's people. And contained in that, there are the 613 mitzvot, the actual laws of the Torah. And we sometimes have inherited this legacy, partially from Martin Luther, which says these are silly, outdated, pointless things that Christians don't need to do. And when you stop and think about saying that in front of a Jewish friend, you realize what you're actually saying. Your religion is dumb, which is terrible. In fact, if you read the New Testament, Jesus doesn't say these are outmoded, silly, pointless things. He says, I have come not to change one jot of the law. Anyone who teaches another not to obey the law will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill the law. In today's gospel, he's critiquing these Pharisees who pay such extreme attention to keeping kosher, to Jewish dietary laws, such extreme attention to the washing of hands and cups and plates and so forth. And it's not because these are bad things in and of themselves. The point of this minutia is to bring God into every moment of every day, to make every act an act of unity with God, an act of blessing God, an act of prayer, to live as someone who worships God not for one hour on Sundays or just before you go to bed at night, but every second of every day, which is beautiful. But much like tying a really complex fly and leaving off the hook, if you follow the dietary laws with absolute exactitude and yet slander your neighbor, gossiping about others, bearing false witness, dishonoring your father and mother, killing, stealing, you have completely lost the plot. And so it's this that is making these Pharisees frustrated. Because they want to say, look, we are living by the book. We are doing it all exactly. We are earning something really profound from God. And Jesus is like, you are just totally missing the point. And this is contrasted with this Canaanite woman from the region of Tyre and Sidon. So we hear the region of Tyre and Sidon, and we think the region of Silver Spring and Tacoma Park. You know, she's just giving us some context here. Where is she from? Over there. If you were an ancient person and you heard Tyre and Sidon, you would think something completely different. So Strabo, the ancient geographer, talks about going to Sidon and seeing that this is the home of arithmetic. The home of astronomy, this is in Strabo's time, the greatest center of world philosophy. And Herodotus, 500 years before, talks about going to ta- Tyre, and he talks about Tyre as the Phoenician Vatican. doesn't use that term, it would be anachronistic, but it is the hub of Phoenician religion. There's the great temple to Melkert there, that's one of the great temples of the ancient world a giant pillar of solid gold, a giant pillar of solid emerald. This was the spot for Phoenician religion. And if you're an ancient person and you know one thing about Phoenician worship, you know that when the going gets tough, the Phoenician gods demand the sacrifice of your children. The Phoenicians, according to the Romans, according to the Greeks, the Phoenicians practiced child sacrifice. That was their thing. That was their worship. So when this woman comes to Christ and says, help, my daughter has been possessed by a demon, he's like, no joke, obviously. Look at this creepy death cult you've been involved in all your life. You've been worshiping demons who have demanded child sacrifice, and yeah, here's the result. And he says... It is unfair to take the food of the children and give it to the dogs. We hear this and we hear, did he just call her like a dirty dog? I mean, that is really, was he having a bad day? Like, what's going on here? But this is not an insult. A dog, like an oyster, like a shrimp, like a horse, is an unkosher animal, an unclean animal. Jewish people in the ancient world had dogs in their house, snuggled with dogs at night, used dogs to tend their sheep, fed the dogs from the table, but they didn't eat dogs. He's not saying you're a disgusting, awful beast. He's saying you are as far from the people of God as you can possibly be. You have taken a route that goes diametrically opposite from Judaism. But this woman is so courageous. This woman is so aware of who Jesus is, of who God is, that she says, you know what? Even the dogs receive the crumbs from the table. I know, even though you say I am so radically different, I know what God's about. I know what you're about. You're about love and goodness and mercy and compassion for all. And so I didn't even hear what you just said because I'm so focused on my faithful understanding of who you are. We so often talk about self-worth, self-esteem. And sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, I could never serve on altar I am I'm not worthy to touch those things. I could never be a Eucharistic visitor. I can't imagine being worthy enough to bring communion to someone's house, to minister in the name of Christ. I could never be a priest. I am am not worthy. And I have to comfort them by saying, you're absolutely right. You are not worthy. Neither am I. Neither is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Neither was St. Francis. Who is so generous, so kind, so selfless, that you have somehow earned being best friends with the maker of the universe. Like, you can imagine a baby who is the most developmentally advanced baby in the history of the world. At six months, she is identifying the letters of the alphabet, she is doing basic addition, you know, she can point to the books and, like, she can almost sort of spell out the word Tolstoy. But who would take that baby and say, you are the next CFO of my company. I'm hiring you, be here on Wednesday. There was no way that a baby could earn the job as a chief financial officer. That's just utterly insane. We are tiny, limited, largely wrong-headed, often mistaken, just tiny little beings who live, best case scenario, 105 years. Compared to him who is the source of all goodness and peace and love and light and justice and joy, none of us are worthy of God. And yet, you know what? God does not care. God loves each of us infinitely. He doesn't just look past our flaws. He loves our flaws. To us, we, to him, we are his perfect children. And this is the place that this Canaanite woman is coming from. She sees Christ. She knows what Christ is about. And she says, I don't care. I know what you're into. Heal my daughter. And he says something to her that he never says to John, that he never says to Peter or Andrew or Thomas or any of the disciples. He says, woman, great is your faith. Because of your faith, your daughter is already healed. It's a done deal. Evil cannot stand in the face of this level of intensity of hope and trust and goodness and love. So do you ever feel like one of these Pharisees? That you have to get it right, play by the rules, go by the book, and earn the goodness of God. That you have to work your way up to being worthy of God's forgiveness, worthy of God's love. Well, I will tell you, you're missing the plot. Instead, all of us have to come before God in total humility in total trust in his love, in his goodness, not worrying about our flaws or anything else, but like this Canaanite woman, simply adoring God. Kierkegaard says that um, faith meekly asks for the left hand of God while love boldly demands his right hand. And this is the model of our faith. To echo the words of this Canaanite woman, to come before Christ and say, Lord, help me. Amen.